0: Hello, I'm Travis Mills, and I make westerns. Thank you for listening to our podcast. In 2020, I made 12 western feature-length films in 12 months. Now I continue to explore the genre on set and off set in this podcast about the western genre and filmmaking process, featuring special guest interviews and more. This podcast is produced by 5 j Media, and brought to you by Running Wild Films. This music is composed by Christopher Hart from the soundtrack for our Western Counting Bullets. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, and coming soon, we will have a video version on our Running Wild Films YouTube channel. Now for our latest episode, but first a message about one of our sponsors. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. I had the pleasure to work with him on the casting side with Terror on the Prairie, our upcoming Western. His name is David Guglielmo. And uh, thank you, David, for joining the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Hey, Travis. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great. So tell me a little bit about where you are now. We were talking about this a little bit offline. Um, You were in L.A. for years and you just made the move to New York, right?
1: Yes. So I'm six weeks in. As a New Yorker, uh, I lived here before I moved out to L.A. 10 years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, the last 10 years I've been in L.A. and uh, it's, it's the next chapter for me.
0: That's awesome. I can totally understand, you know, wanting to kind of do something different and switch things up. I'm at that point in my life, too. Um, so give me a little bit uh, about your background, where you grew up, and how you made it into the movie industry.
1: Yeah, well, I grew up right around here, Fort Lee, New Jersey. So right over the George Washington Bridge. Right now I'm on the Upper West Side, so I can get home in, you know, my hometown in 10 minutes. Um, But uh, I went to School of Visual Arts in Manhattan and uh, majored in directing. And then after college, spent a couple of years living here in Manhattan on the Lower East Side. uh, Not really finding, you know, I think everyone goes through that slump after college where you're like, what's going on? Like, when, you know, when am I going to get a job and all that? Uh, but I just wasn't finding the opportunity here in New York because you know it's 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 here, but it's not as um, one-track-minded as, as L.A. L.A. is a film town, and and I knew that I needed to go there, so I I just uh, I was working at a at a rec center, you know, making minimum wage, and I saved up thousand dollars, and then I bought a one-way ticket, and I think I ended up with six hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't have a place to live and I didn't have uh, a job and I didn't have a plan at all. But I knew one guy, my friend Nick Chakwin, who I went to college with. And I said, hey, man, can I sleep on your couch you know, while I figure this out? But I just know I need to be in L.A. And, and, and he said, yeah, come by. And um, you know, one week turned into a couple weeks. Uh, and while we're under the same roof, we're both writers. So, so we just thought, why don't we write something together and make this productive? So we wrote a movie called No Way to Live, and uh, people really liked it. We didn't have any connections in the industry, but we'd give it to friends and things like that, and they were like, dude, I read this in one sitting. Um, And people started passing it around to other people. And I worked at a juice bar at the time, and um, I would just kind of give it to whoever wanted to read it. And I gave it to a guy named Jerry Stahl, who is a really great writer who wrote Permanent Midnight and a bunch of other really great books, Um, and... And that was the first person that I knew who was a writer who I gave it to. Uh, you know, he'd come in and get his green juice. And he, he wrote me that night and he was like, dude, this is like a Jim Thompson novel, but better. And uh, these are his words, not mine. But, you know, he was like, it's phenomenal. And I went, holy shit, if Jerry Stahl is saying that this is really worth a damn, it is. And that kind of gave me a little, put a little fire under me to, to get this thing made. <clears throat> and um, we, Nick and I met this guy from Texas who, you know, was from an oil family and said he's looking to put money into a movie. And he said, I'll give you half a million dollars, uh, you know, if you have a good thriller. And we gave him this and he liked it and he said, okay, let's do it. So we kind of, you know, went through the whole process, hired a casting director, cast up the movie. Um, got a, got, you know, we were location scouting and all this stuff. And then six weeks out, right when we were entering hard prep, he pulled the money out and he said, you know, he just got cold feet. He said, I don't think it's a good investment. And I mean, he, you know, to an extent he was right, but he should have realized that before he, you know, made the LLC and did all the things, uh, cause we weren't pre-selling the movie. There was no guarantee. Of course, we would have had to, you know, done well. We would have had to have a big acquisition at a festival or something, <clears throat> So we pulled out the money and, uh, we thought, well, we were devastated. Um, but, but the cool thing was that we had paid for a casting director and we have our cast. So I thought we can't just give up. Now. Let's, let's see if we could raise the money ourselves. And, and, um, and we did a little bit, you know, we, we hit a wall at $20,000, which to us was amazing. I mean, we were coming from film school where we shot movies for nothing. And I was like, if I can make a 20 minute movie for literally nothing, I can make a full-length movie for twenty thousand dollars. We should just try to shoot this movie for twenty thousand uh, dollars. So we reached out to the actors and we said, "Hey, can we just try to shoot this movie? And we probably won't finish it, but at least we'll have something. Then we can show people, uh, you know, a proof of concept. Because the big thing, the wall we were coming up against was, you don't have a movie. You know, you're a first-time director. How do I know the script is cool? But how do I know this isn't going to be a huge piece of shit? Uh, and 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 and." We did that. The actors were like, yeah, it's fine. Let's just go out and shoot. And we actually shot uh, half the film for $20,000. And then we started cutting it together and showing people, and they were like, actually, this looks and feels like a movie. This is really cool. I want to see what happens next. So, um, you know, we raised a little more money, a little more money, and we'd shoot on weekends, and and we shot throughout the whole year. And finally, uh, we we finished the film, and it ended up being $150,000 or a little under that, and um, afterwards, we were all really proud of it, and I still am, and afterwards, the casting director, since he stayed on with us for so long, we, we formed a relationship, and we really clicked, and he said, why don't you come and be my assistant? <clears throat> so, uh, I did, and I cut my teeth with him doing, like, 20 films, and, um, you know, or, over, like, a couple of years, and then I, I realized, hey, I'm really good at this, and... And I, I can do this, and everyone I know is making movies in some capacity, you know, now. After being in L.A. for a couple of years, all my friends were either acting or writing or directing or producing. So I just went out to everyone and I said, look, I'm a casting director now. I'm, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm still going to direct movies. I'm still going to write. But I need a day-to-day job, and this is a good one. I love this. So uh, if you're going to make a movie, you know, please use me. And they did. And all I needed were a couple of producers that had a couple of movies a year to kind of build up my resume. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into casting.
0: That's cool, man. So let's backtrack just a little bit because I watched No Way to Live the other night on Tubi. Uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, you should watch it. Tubi's free, great place to watch it, it just has some ads. Um, one of the things I want to say about the movie, and when I first met you, I had no idea that we have a mutual love of film noir and pulp literature right and and we've since discovered that um few movies in my opinion in the modern era really capture the pulp feeling like some of them try but they don't really get the pulp feeling so talk about a little bit more about the inspiration behind doing that kind of material and also tell me a little bit more about working with your main collaborator
1: yeah so I, I, I was reading a lot of that material, and I'm, a just, I'm just a huge fan of um, you know, writers like Jim Thompson and James M. Cain and David Goodis and all of those guys who wrote you know, the, the, the more obscure ones too that wrote it for the, the gold medal thrillers, and you know um, recently there, there have been a lot of uh, revivals of, of, of authors through Black Lizard or Hard Case, hard case Crime, and I just kind of went down that, that rabbit hole for years. Really connecting with it, uh, because I've always loved film noir, but but I, I really got into the literature, and I thought I want to make a paperback movie. I want to make a movie that is like the way these novels feel when you read them. Uh, so that was yeah, that was the big inspiration, and um, and also just just thinking like okay, noir is a tricky thing. It's almost like spaghetti westerns where if you try to do one. Uh, a lot of times they become very retro, they become throwbacks, they become wink-wink, wink, tongue-in-cheek types of movies. And sometimes I can enjoy watching that, but that's not what I want to make. I want to make something modern. Even though it's a period piece, I wanted it to feel noir in the sense that like, I'm just in the same headspace as these guys were. And it's cheap, right? And we think of noir aesthetic, shadowy and all that stuff. Well, that's just because they had single-source lighting and they were on set. Uh, it, it wasn't something that was consciously done until later. So I thought, okay, I'm making a really cheap movie, um, and it's about these people that are kind of really desperate. And like, how do I just get into this into this headspace and make my aesthetic and make the tone of it and make everything kind of just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing that same thing that Jim Thompson was doing but now?
0: That makes sense that makes sense what's your relationship like with your co-director like how do you guys balance the because you guys have made this and then hospitality together a few years later how do you guys balance the creative process together what's that what's that like
1: um nick and i get along uh really well both personally and creatively but i think i think that you know it's not something that's always going to work i don't recommend it uh per se but for us uh, we, I think we complement each other in terms of our personalities. Um, I think, you know, on set, we do a lot of, we wrote the script together. So I wouldn't direct with him a movie necessarily that we didn't write together. I, I just wouldn't see the point. I think he would say the same thing. Uh, but since we wrote them together and we both want to be directors, we just thought, okay, like neither one is going to like give the other one a gift here. Like we both want to do this. We both need to break into the industry. Let's just direct it together. And the key, the key is that whoever, if someone asks, if someone has a question, they need to ask a question, Whoever is closest, that's who you go to. And they're going to give you the same answer as the other one. So, uh, we, we just do a lot of prep and we figure it's not like, Oh, this Nick does the actors and I do the cinematography or, you know, it's not like that. It's, it's, it, we don't have fortes. It's, it's just get on the same page. And and, and 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 go beat by beat by beat on the script and on the shot list and on everything so we're completely on the same page once we step foot on set.
0: I love that. That's, that's good advice for collaborators in general, but obviously especially for people who are going to try to direct together or produce together. Um, I want to talk real quick about the casting in No Way to Live and then we'll move on to talk about casting. Um, I think one of the things that makes that movie work so well are the actors that you chose with your casting director, especially your lead actress, Freya, right? She's incredible. I mean, she carries the whole thing, plays, you know, very much a character, like a film fatal type character, but without, again, making it cheesy, without making it an homage. It's its own thing, has all the complexities. Who is she? Just talk a little bit about her and working with her.
1: Yeah, well, she's, she is, like you said, incredible. One of my favorite actresses and a very close friend. <clears throat> and I think it helped, you know, because she was so young when we, when we did that movie, and I think it helped that she hadn't seen these movies. She didn't know who Barbara Stanwyck was or who Gene Tierney was. or You know what I mean? Like So so she's just coming at it. She's just duplicating what's on the script and trying to just embody that character and be that character. So there's no wink because, like, what, what could you be winking to? She is completely, like, you know, it kind of... In a vacuum, in that way, um, but but also um, she just she's just you know very wise, very wise beyond her years, and and um, just understood the kind of personality that you need to be, the kind of sociopathic personality that you need to be psychologically to, to to be so manipulative and to do these things. Uh, it wasn't. Ooh, this is fun. I'm going to play a villain. It was actually like really understanding what makes someone like that tick. And I remember talking to her about it back then and being like, Whoa, okay. Like this is, you know, um, she really under, she really understood it and did her research on
0: it. Yeah. She doesn't judge the character at all. She's just so honestly and sincerely the character. In both her good actions and her, you know, immoral actions, which is, which is what makes it, I think, so good. Um, she's on my list to work with now. So moving on to casting, I think that casting is kind of a little bit of a mystery process, especially for audience members who aren't in the industry. But I think it is a little bit of a mystery even for actors. Right, like Actors kind of don't really understand what's all going on behind the scenes when it comes to choosing people for these roles. So a producer contacts you, you get hired as a casting director. Walk me through some of what that all entails.
1: Um, so it really depends um, on what kind of film it is. So let's say a producer comes to me and they have a fully financed film and they have firm dates. And they just need me to cast all the roles. You know, maybe the leads are straight offers. And, and the supporting roles are auditions. Um, I just, I, I, I write character descriptions. <clears throat> and I put out what I call a breakdown. So all the agents and managers can see it in whatever region that we're shooting. Or, or maybe all over the country or maybe all over the world. Depending on, you know, what's needed and wanted on the film. And, and what the budget can handle and all of those things. And then I get submissions And, uh, you know, for the, for the leads, I write my own lists and then the agents submit and I combine their ideas with my ideas and I check availabilities and I make the offers, uh, or I set up, you know, director meetings or sometimes the audition. Um, but if I'm doing just, you know, the day players or the supporting roles, um, you know, I'll, 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 I'll highlight all the people that are submitted to me that look appropriate for the role. I'll add some of my own people that I know from previous films. And I'll send out now in in a post COVID world, I'll, I'll send out self-tape auditions. It used to be everyone, I would have sessions in the office, uh, but I haven't done that in years. So, so now I'm sending out self-tape auditions and then I, I, I get all of them and I send them to the producers and the director. And of course I have my favorites and they have their favorites and we talk about it and, and really it's the best person for that role. That ends up get, booking the job, and, and I want to. Why I want to clarify that is because it's not the best actor necessarily. It's it's whoever feels like that character, and someone who doesn't get the role should never feel rejected, um, because it really comes down to the director's specific vision, but also the director's taste, and. Um, there have been so many auditions where people read for me and I think they're really great and they don't end up getting it sometime. And I, and even if I agree that they weren't quite right for that, I, I go back and I end up casting them in other films um, because they're... You know there are just so many talented actors out there and and uh it's such a specific thing it's so project specific when you're looking for these roles
0: yeah it's i think it's good advice to people when, when i'm working with actors or casting i try to advise them that don't take it personally if you don't get cast there's so many factors that are going into this like you said director's taste and then and, and so many different things i was going to say
1: sometimes we go oh my god we ended up with all the in this movie now i need a brunette or something to differentiate it for the viewer. Like, I mean, sometimes you wouldn't even realize how, how um, you know, it, it, how uh, trivial it seems. But, but these are all decisions and things that kind of, you know, contribute to the larger picture.
0: Absolutely. And I think that if someone gets an audition, gets to tape, then they should feel... <laughs> pretty good about themselves cause they're doing things that are working. And then if they find themselves in the final, you know, five or 10 for a role, then they should feel even better cause they're doing a lot. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you said you haven't done in-person auditions for years. It's been tapes. Does any part of you miss the process of doing in-person casting calls?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. I loved it. It was maybe my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, and I could do it. I could start it up again and have people in the room. But you know what? I, I happen to think that actors prefer this. And it's just the new way that we're doing it. Uh, they have more control. You know, there are no nerves involved. I mean, I get it. Um, and I'm sure some people will differ. So I some actors tell me that they really miss it. But I think this is the way it's going to be moving forward. Uh, and, and I've accepted that. I'm okay with that. And it's allowed me to kind of... Um, you know, be in different places. And uh, it's definitely easier for both the casting director and the actor. <clears throat> um, I used to have session. It would start at 10 in the morning. I'd break at lunch at 1. And then I'd start again at 2. And I'd go until 5 or 6. And then, once it was done, I had to upload all the tapes onto my computer because they were on the camera. And then, after that, I had to answer all the emails that I missed throughout the day because I didn't have an assistant, you know. I was, so, so that was a really tough... That was a really hard-working time of my life. Uh, and um, I think that I, I found now I could be more productive because I press a button and I know the self-tapes are coming through and I can do all these other things while that's happening simultaneously. Um, and it, it's a good thing ultimately. But yes, I do miss it because I, I like getting to know people and, and I'm, a, I'm a gregarious... Guy and I like to meet the actors and I also like to uh, make adjustments in the room that could be very minor that maybe I don't want to bug them for I don't, like, I, you know, if it's a self-tape I don't want to say hey can they do it again for this one line it seems a little silly but in the room you, know, you do that and, and you, know, you really put your best foot forward so I, I, I do think that, that there's a benefit to both and it's just a matter of kind of uh, you know, the greater good what makes sense for right now
0: Makes sense. You mentioned that the kind of the general process, if, if a project is fully funded, has dates. So what happens, I'm assuming that you've done projects that weren't fully funded, didn't have firm dates. They're more in the development, you know, script raising money phase. How do you approach that differently?
1: Yeah. So I've, uh, because I come from a world of making movies And because I have a lot of connections and friends in the industry that are sales agents or or distributors, people like that, I I think that I, where I differ from other casting directors is that I really understand finance and distribution. And I also have have realized that the actors are driving the industry and you have a a script that maybe isn't marketable, you know, on paper per se. It's not going to be greenlighted by a studio or streamer. But you put the right actors in it, and now all of a sudden it is. Uh, And and actors, the really cool thing about this is that actors are artists. So you find really, you know, they're going to respond to interesting material. And investors and, you know, the suits over at the studios, they're not necessarily gravitating toward the most interesting material. What they want to do is they want to mitigate their risks. So they want safe films. And safe means things that we've seen before, that have done well before. So I find that I'm in a position where I can really take interesting films from, from directors who have singular, unique visions and get them made where maybe they would ordinarily have a hard time, you know, going down that traditional traditional route. Uh, so I'll so I'll take a script sometimes and I'll set it up with a distributor. You know, I'll either go through a sales agent or or I'll go straight to a distributor and I'll say. You know, here's the script, here's the director. Um, here's a list of names that I think are attainable for something like this, pending their availability, you know, and, and, and pending a lot of things, whether or not they, they click to it, how much money we have, all of that stuff. But here are some people that I think would that I can go out to, that I can make offers to. Uh, circle the people you like and tell me how much money you'd buy that movie for. And they do that, and then I know that I can go out to these people safely uh, knowing that, that we have our ducks in a row and if one of those people says yes, it triggers that what we call a minimum guarantee, uh, which gets paid to you when you deliver the film, and then we just need someone to the cash flow of the movie, which if you have paper from a legitimate company like a Lionsgate or an AMC company, you know, you can do any you can take it to the bank if you want, but there are a lot of companies that that do that. And, uh, we get movies made that way. And, and, you know, I'm very transparent with the agents when that's the case. So nobody feels, and, and we're not going out to AFM and we're not going out to the markets and oversaturating the, you know, their client's visibility and all that. We're just, we're already set up and you go ping, bong, boom, and you get the movie made. And that's something that, uh, I'm finding to be very, uh, you know, I feel like I'm I'm championing the arts in a lot of ways, because now you have a movie. No, nobody is really making. You're making the movie to make the movie. you you're, you're ba- essentially you're breaking even, because the company is going to mark up their costs, and you know nobody's really seeing money in the end of the day, except for you know they get their salary and all that. But you're making your movie the way you want to make it. The, the directors getting their their uh, their vision on the screen, and many times they're getting their final cut. So It's a very cool thing, and you have your marquee name there that breaks through the noise and kind of cuts through all the other indie films. And uh, if you're a first-time director, that's enough to get you your second film
0: yeah that makes sense that's that's something that i think all of this is people things that people don't really know a lot about especially if they're just a casual viewer but even a lot of my audience are people that are breaking into the industry actors that are getting started filmmakers that are getting started so that's really good to know and i appreciate that you're thinking about casting from that direction too not just considering fully funded films so that's super cool um is there anything else about the process of casting that you feel like people should think about or realize that they don't usually.
1: Well, that's a good question. I I, I think I answered it really be, with the, um, you know, the rejection of it all. I, I just really wouldn't. I, I would change the, my mindset in that regard because, like you said, if you have an agent or a manager, even if you don't, uh, right now I've been kind of I've been circumventing agents and managers a lot because I think there's so many. Talented people out there that, you know, the agents and managers are just like the distributors and the studio heads. They're they're uh, risk averse, and they they don't, you know, they're they're not going to. Someone could be really great, but if they just don't see dollar signs, for whatever reason, uh, they don't take them on. And during COVID, they're not taking on a lot of a lot of agents have stopped taking clients. So I'm going directly to actors through Instagram. I'm going directly to actors through. Um, actors access or or, uh, backstage or LA casting you know and I'll you get get to choose whether or not you want to go to the agents managers or if you want to go directly to talent and many times I'll go directly to talent now because I want to leave no stone unturned and I love breaking out stars so um, basically I I, I digressed. but um, if you're getting the audition that's a great thing that means something you you have a look you have have a presence we're, we're calling you in to read and uh, I could absolutely love the tape, but I have so many people and I have so many things that I just don't tell you. Hey, I love that. Sometimes I will. Sometimes I'll say, that was really awesome and let's keep in touch. But sometimes I just get pulled in another direction. And you just don't know when that, when that opportunity is going to come back around in a, in a direct or indirect way. I could tell someone else that I saw a great actor And then they cast that actor in their movie. And they don't even know that it came from me and from uh, from that audition that they thought was a rejection. So outflow, always just put yourself out there. And I think that if you're doing that, you're on the right track.
0: I think that's great advice. Um, Real quick, just for the record, would you say that any person that's serious about being an actor and getting work has to... Be an actor's access member and or backstage member. Um, that's my advice to actors. That that hey, look, just just pay the seventy bucks a year. This is an essential part of it. What are your thoughts?
1: You know, I'm not a guru, and I'm also not. Um, I don't like these companies necessarily having a monopoly on on this. Um, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. As didactic as that, I—I I mean, not to no offense. I mean, it's—it's it's certainly good advice because that's what I. Do. It's not, you know what I mean? Like, yes, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. Um, I just think that there are so many ways to do things. There are just so many ways that I can't—I can't say that that's the. But but I mean, if you can afford it and you could do it, why not? because it's just about exposure, getting yourself out there, and, and um, you know, it's like the same thing with acting class. People ask me all the time, and I just say, I don't know. It's whatever works for you. Um, if something makes you feel good at the end of the day, and makes you feel like you're productive, then, then do it, and if it doesn't, then don't. Uh, I know that, you know, there are people, there are street casting people that just go out on the street and say, hey, you look like you're you should be in a movie. Uh, you know, go work with the Safety brothers or whatever. So, so I don't know. I bet you there's some there's some casting directors that never open actors access. But I but I do. I, I tend to use breakdown services. I tend to use um, casting networks.
0: Cool. Uh, yeah, I know. I've been watching a lot of Abel uh, Ferrera movies, uh, and uh, I know that he doesn't. He casts from the street a lot of times. He'll meet a homeless man and be like you're going to be in the movie and you're going to be in a scene with Willem Dafoe. So you never know where it's going to happen. So let's transition and let's talk about Dallas Sonier, um, who we both have worked with now and you've had a long collaboration with. You're working as a casting director and he ended up being one of the producers that you worked with consistently, starting with Standoff at Sparrow Creek, which is a film that I love and has a perfect ensemble cast. Talk about working with him and how that whole started, and that your collaboration with Dallas.
1: First, uh, thank you. I'm glad you really like it. I really like it too. I'm very proud of that movie. Um, so I reached out to Dallas because I think that uh, he was representing um, S. Craig Zoller, who's a writer director. Uh, I think Zahler is, is, you know, top five most unique and idiosyncratic and special artists that we have right now working and i i said this is when i was thinking about you know i wanted to i wanted the manager at the time to rep me for as a director and i just thought well whose career do i
0: want
1: well zoller i would love that's the career i want so I reached out to Dallas and I said, "Hey, I'm a director, and I did this movie. And take a look at No Way to Live, and all that stuff." And he said, "You know, I'm actually transitioning from from managing to producing." And I said, "Oh, even better. Uh, produce one of my movies, you know." And, and and he was he took a look at everything, and we, we couldn't really find a, you know the right fit. But he must have seen he saw in my in my signature that I was working at the time as an associate uh, for another casting director. <clears throat> And then, uh, you know, some time went by and I started my own company as a casting director. And I guess he was keeping tabs because he, he's very good at that at kind of connecting dots and realizing where people are and being on IMDb and all of that. And so am I. Um, so I was kind of following what he was doing. He was following what I was doing. <clears throat> and he reached out to me and said, I'm, I'm showing Zoller's next film. We're all in Cell Block 99. I'm screening it for WME. For Vince Vaughn and Don Johnson, uh, do you want to come? And I was, of course. So I went to the screening. It blew my mind. It's, it's an incredible film. And afterwards, he said, I see you, you have your own company, your casting. I want to talk with you about that. And then he kind of got pulled off in another direction. And, and I uh, also kind of forgot about it because I think it was like Christmas break and I was going to Australia. So I went to Australia and some, t- some weeks went by and then – Right in the new year, he reached out to me and said, I have this script, Stand Up at Sparrow Creek. It's really an amazing movie, amazing from you know, amazing script from a guy named Henry Dunham who was on the blacklist. And we had all these stars circling it. Um, at, the t- at the time, Army Hammer, before he got canceled, and <clears throat> a couple of other people who were interested, who showed interest. But it was right when Trump got elected. There was, uh, it- the movie's about a militia. And people just didn't want to be seen in that light and they didn't want to be, uh, they didn't want the film to be uh, interpreted as a pro-militia or, you know, humanizing these people, which it does, and, and, or being, you know, God forbid a right-wing movie. So, (laughs) so uh, they all kind of dropped out and went and did their left-wing movies. And like, call me by your name. And Um, And and Dallas was really, really passionate about the movie. And every once in a while, he gets very passionate about a movie. And he just says, you know, fuck it. Let's just make this for whatever we can. And I think that, you know, the pull the trigger number was $500,000. Now, it's very liberating because we don't need a name. Uh, You know, it's great if we get one. But it's just like, cast the best actors you want. Cast the, you know, the, and let's just make this movie. And uh, we ended up getting an, an incredible ensemble because when you have a script like that, they all want to come and play. So, James Badge Dale and Brian Garrity and Patrick Fischler and Happy Anderson, and, you know, just the list goes on of all the people that I took note of and all these other films that would just pop in and, and really make an impression. Let's give them a lot of screen time this time. And, um, And I'm just really just, I think someone called it the Avengers of, of character actors. And I really, uh, I love that because I really think it is. And it ended up being a really great film that went to TIFF and it premiered there, uh, to great reviews. And to this day, I think I probably get the most work from that movie. People reach out and say to me how much they love it. So that was a really special one. And we had such a great time, me and Dallas working. I think that we have the same sensibilities and we communicate really well, and we're both really hard workers around the clock, you know, text each other at midnight about what actors, you know, are available and all that, which no other casting directors is really going to do. They're not. <laughs> you know, it, it's like 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock hits, and they're gone, and, and even within working hours, you get their assistance. You don't get them. So the fact that we have this, you know, text message chain that's never stopping, that's, that's a really important thing when you want to – when, you, when you're making down and dirty indies, right? When you need that quick response time and that kind of passion that that's going to mirror everyone else, the director and all that. So he hired me to be the head of casting for his company, Sinistique. Uh And then, uh, right after that, he didn't even tell me this was going to happen, but I saw that he bought Fangoria, the, the legendary horror magazine that I grew up subscribing to, and I was very, very excited about that. So I... I Texted him. I said, "Holy shit, you got Fangoria." He said, "Yeah, you know." Uh, I, I said, "I really want to help you in any way. I mean, I'll write for free. I don't care. Like, I just love Fangoria." And he, and, and he was like, "Well, you are helping. You're the head of casting." Uh, I didn't know that they were making movies. So, so we did that. We did, we did uh, a bunch of movies, and you know, cut through the noise with 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 big, big names like Guy Pierce, Rebecca Romaine. I mean, I, I put together a. a an ensemble that rivaled Sparrow Creek in terms of midnight movies, called VFW, where we had Susan Lang, William Sadler, David Patrick Kelly, Fred Williamson, the Hammer, you know, all of these people that we grew up watching in exploitation, grindhouse, midnight movies, genre movies, classics, uh, and that did the festival circuit, and that did really well. So we just had this this really this great run, and and then and then he shifted, uh, rebranded. And now we're doing movies with Daily Wire. So we did Terror on the Prairie, Gina Carano, uh, we did Shut In with Rainey Qualley and Vincent Gallo, who was one of my absolute favorites. And we did Run Hide Fight, which is a whole other story. Another passion project on par on par with with with, um, with Sparrow and you know Bone Tomahawk before that. Dallas, you know, mortgaged, I think, his company to, to make the movie and um, you know, it took me two years to even get help, you know, I was doing I was trying to get names involved and everyone was scared. And eventually we just said, let's, let's go make this movie and, and we ended up at uh, at the Venice Film Festival, premiering on the red carpet at the most prestigious festival in the world alongside a can.
0: That's awesome, man. It's such a great history that you have with Dallas and Amanda and their team. I was going to bring up VFW because that's another of my favorites. Um, You used a lot of guys that we see maybe pop up here and there in genre films, but it's the way that they come together as a team, as kind of a modern day wild bunch and the way that the script plays and the director used them and that you guys as a team brought them together that really like it's to me when I was watching it, I'm like, this is Martin Cove's best performance in years. If not ever, this is Bill Sadler's best performance in years, you know, and to have all of those lined up. I, th- I think it's a really, really special movie. So kudos on that one for sure.
1: Thanks. Yeah. I really love it too. And those guys just clicked the second they got on set and you could see you could see the chemistry and the camaraderie and Joe Bigas, the director is like a drill sergeant i mean that guy like you know i don't even know if he sleeps i mean he really goes hard and you could tell you could tell that that movie i mean that was a cheap movie that wasn't an expensive film and it looks just like i mean it, it's it's really like in a, for a contained movie you have so much practical effects i use it as a as an example when anyone says to me Oh, we need, you know, we need five million dollars for our movie because there's a lot of practical effects. I go, no, you don't. Look at BFW. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. There's so many uh yeah, the, the Gore effects in that movie are incredible. It's, it's, it's probably, I think it's probably Dallas's goriest film, which is saying something. <laughs> but uh, it, it's so well done. I, I really loved it. Um, before we move on to talk about Terror on the Prairie, which I definitely want to focus some time on, um, I just wanted to say also comment on what you were saying about responsiveness and all that. Um, that's something that really impressed me with Dallas is that. Not only did he respond when I first reached out to him, kind of the same way that you did, um, and this is a really busy guy and, and a guy with an amazing amount of credits, um, but he continues to be that way and he tries to follow up with people as much as possible. Um, whereas, you know, some of the producers I'm working with now. Once Friday 5 p.m. hits, you're not hearing from them again if you're lucky until Monday at 9 a.m. Like I said, if you're lucky, you'll hear from them then. So I think there's, you know, obviously you don't want to have this thing run your life so much that you don't have any free time or that you're not living at all. But I think Dallas you and and I'd like to include myself in that camp. We really are doing as much as possible to constantly be working and doing the best job we can.
1: Yeah, no, you're a great you're a great connector and, and uh networker and just coming in and reaching out to me to do this podcast. You know, it's like this is what we need to be doing. Dallas is very, very inclusive and, you know, I I I, I try to be the same way and I am the same way. I probably respond to 99% of my emails, the 1% are the people that you just know are crazy, but I respond to everyone, even if it's just to acknowledge, if, if it's just to say, you know, hey, I got this, I'm keeping you in mind. <clears throat> and Dallas is, yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's honestly just being smart. They have, The old expression is that, you know, the door opens for, for someone in, in Hollywood and then the door closes behind that person. And a lot of people, when they become, you know, established, they close the door behind them. And it's, it's really silly because, uh, you're like, why wouldn't I want to see someone who's incredibly talented, who needs a shot, who, you know, I mean, it could even be opportunistic. They're going to work for cheap, right? It's their first movie. (laughs) Like you're getting it before you're, you know, before anyone knows that they're the next so-and-so. But, but it's like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just. It baffles me how, how people can be so um, so closed off to opportunity for themselves and for other people. And when I was knocking on doors, and I still do knock on doors, you know, I always think of it as, as I'm presenting you with an opportunity. I'm not asking you for a favor. I have something to offer. It's special. It's what I do. Either you click with it or you don't, But but it could potentially be an opportunity for you.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way for people to think of it too. Is that that you're you have something to offer, and to also think of what you do have to offer to make it a benefit for that person you're reaching out to. Um, so let's switch gears. Let's talk about the last project that that we worked on together, Terra on the Prairie. It wasn't your first western because I was looking at your credits and you'd done some casting for a film called The Pale Door, which is on Shudder, um, and I have actually worked very briefly with bill sage who's in that movie i haven't had a chance to check it out but what specific challenges are there to casting a western versus any other genre it's
1: a good question you know and you know the answers to this probably better than i do um i actually made a a western as my thesis film in college um and it was five thousand dollars and it was called "Damn Your Eyes," and it was a 20-minute-long western. And my first feature script that I ever wrote was the "Damn Your Eyes" feature, because I wanted the, the short to be a proof of concept for the feature. So, in many ways, doing westerns now is, is full circle because I've always wanted to make westerns. Um, I think I think the answer to your question is just um, authenticity. So, you you don't. Obviously, if someone has work done on their face or something like that, that's a problem in a Western. Um, if if someone is, um, you know, some people just look modern-looking. You can't help it. It's just, and sometimes that's a good thing. They're very good-looking, but you know, it just doesn't fit. So you got to think about the time. And, and I have a book called The West. It's a big coffee table book, and You know, sometimes I'll look at the pictures of the people in there and everything. And, um, yeah, authenticity. Because very quickly a movie can become the CW version of that movie. You know what I mean? And when you're in L.A. especially, it becomes the pretty person movie very quickly. And not to say the cast of Terror isn't good looking. They're all very good looking. But there's there's a grit to them and there's a realism to them. And um, and yeah, Pildor, Pildor was was similar. Pildor is also a horror movie. Uh, so I, so this one was like the re, my real, real you know true western, I think.
0: Yeah, well that's that's I'm glad that you value the authenticity, and I think that's why like during the process of working together on Terror you guys reached out to me about possibilities for some of these smaller roles is that my people kind of can bring that authenticity and might have a little bit of an edge over someone who might have 20 great acting credits, but they're just kind of a pretty boy and they don't know how to ride a horse. They don't know the wardrobe. They're just not a Western person, you know? Um, Obviously like someone like Sam Elliott brings so much authenticity to a role that he walks on screen and you just feel, okay, this is a Western. So there's a lot of, a lot of value to that, absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's another thing, riding a horse, and um, in this case, uh, doing some physical work. There were stunts, there were things that you know <laughs> not a lot of actors are gonna be able to do. Uh, so no, you were a great help, really. Uh, I mean, the people that you brought, um, Tom, uh, Tom Drack, Right, he was really great. Um, so, so I think that yeah, you're in the movie. So so you're invaluable here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I was in the movie a few times. I didn't I didn't think I was gonna be in it at all. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're playing a character. Then you're coming off a horse in a stunt. Then you're getting tackled by Cowboy Cerrone for another stunt. So. That's why again, like you can't take like you said before, you can't take things personally. You can't get discouraged. Something you do today might pay off months from now, weeks from now. Um, just put yourself out there, do your best work, and then be open for the opportunities that are going to come. So I've seen that, saw that firsthand with you guys. And and I tried to remind all of my people that auditioned for that is, you know, you are in contention for roles that they're normally looking at. Semi names for so you should feel really proud of yourself to be here on that stage trying.
1: Yeah, absolutely, hundred
0: percent. Cool, man. Well, um, is there anything else that you want to share with people about you, your work, what you're working on next?
1: Um, I well, we have a lot of ex- exciting things with Daily Wire uh, that I can't speak about yet, but we definitely have uh, a lot of a lot of exciting things in the pipeline. Um, I'm directing a movie. And that's going to happen in um, either September or October. I'm trying to nail down the dates. And it's it's another noir, so I'm I'm pretty thrilled. Uh, and just a lot of casting, a lot of casting. We have a, I have a horror movie right now shooting in Kentucky. I have another horror movie right now shooting in Oklahoma City. I have you know so it's just like like I I just want actors to be able to reach out to me and. And, um, even if it's just saying, hello, uh, here's my headshot because you never know. I could just, you, you know, there's always stuff happening and, um, and I like, it's a small world, the film world. I like keeping it that way. I like having me, it be a community and knowing everyone. And I'm really happy that we connected.
0: Absolutely, man. Well, I'm going to, I think that the knowledge that you've shared in this podcast and the knowledge you've given me so far is invaluable and I plan to encourage all of my people to follow you and and see all these cool projects that are coming up. And I'm looking forward to seeing your next noir. Um, because I loved No Way to Live. I haven't seen Hospitality yet, but I'll be watching it soon. And then whatever's next, that's great. So thank you so much for doing this podcast, David.
1: Of course. Hospitality, by the way, is also on Tubi and also on Voodoo. So so those are both free with ads. And you know what? I kinda like the ads tell you the truth I just watched this movie yesterday with ads and I thought like this takes me back to the old days with the cable tv so it's quite nice check it out there
0: (laughs) yeah it's so funny when I was watching some 2b movies with my parents we were talking about these ads are great we get to go up and go to the bathroom or refill the popcorn bowl or pour another glass of whiskey like that's (laughs) nothing wrong with advertisement breaks so thanks so much David I appreciate it well that's it for my conversation with David Soon I'll release a video version on our Running Wild Films YouTube channel. And coming up for the podcast, I'll be talking with cinematographer Stephen Petitville, who shot Terror on the Prairie. See you soon.